Come, I said with decision. We will go back. Your health is precious. You are rich, respected, admired, beloved. You are happy, as once I was. You are a man to be missed. For me, it is no matter. We will go back. You will be ill and I cannot be responsible. Besides, there is Lucchese. Enough, he said. The cough is a mere nothing. It will not kill me. I shall not die of a cough. True. True. I replied. I'm Tori the Moth, and this is the Creepy Reads Podcast. Welcome back, listeners, to another episode of the Creepy Reads Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Tori, Tori the Moth. I hope you've all been enjoying the podcast so far. I have to say, for someone who was in desperate need of a creative outlet, it's definitely been a joy to create and produce this show. So thank you again for tuning in. Now, I have to say, I've heard some amazing things from listeners over the past couple of weeks. Some people have said, you know, I've never heard that story before. We actually didn't read that in school. Even things like, you know, I remember reading that one story in school, but I never really understood it until I was able to hear it out loud. And things like that honestly just keep me going. They keep me excited about this podcast and they sum up why I even want to do this. So thank you again. So let's get into today's episode. We are bringing back my favorite writer and storyteller this week, Mr. Edgar Allan Poe. The tale I'm sharing with you today was first published in 1846 and is often referred to as Poe's most perfect short story. Some critics and experts even go as far as to say The Cask of Amontillado is in fact one of the most perfect short stories of all time because every single word and sentence plays into the overall theme and mood of the story. Not a single syllable is wasted, but helps achieve the overall effect Poe was striving for. This is a classic tale of revenge. It is a tale of deception and retribution, chock full of irony and a major creep factor. This is the cask of Amontillado. By Edgar Allan Poe. The thousand injuries of Fortunato I had borne as best I could, but when he ventured upon insult, I vowed revenge. You who so well know the nature of my soul will not suppose, however, that I gave utterance to a threat. At length, I would be avenged. This was a point definitively settled but the very definitiveness with which it was resolved precluded the idea of risk. I must not only punish, but punish with impunity. A wrong is unredressed when retribution overtakes its redresser. It is equally unredressed when the avenger fails to make himself felt as such to him who has done the wrong. It must be understood 
that neither by word nor deed had I given Fortunato cause to doubt my good will. I continued, as was my wont, to smile in his face, and he did not perceive that my smile now was at the thought of his immolation. He had a weak point, this Fortunato. Although in other regards he was a man to be respected and even feared, he prided himself on his connoisseurship of wine. Few Italians have the true virtuoso spirit. For the most part, their enthusiasm is adopted to suit the time and opportunity, to practice imposture upon the British and Austrian millionaires. In painting and gemmery, Fortunato, like his countrymen, was a quack. But in the matter of old wines, he was sincere. In this respect, I did not differ from him materially. I was skillful in the Italian vintages myself and bought largely whenever I could. It was about dusk one evening, during the supreme madness of the carnival season, that I encountered my friend. He accosted me with excessive warmth, for he had been drinking much. The man wore motley. He had on a tight-fitting party-striped dress, and his head was surmounted by the conical cap and bells. I was so pleased to see him that I thought I should never have done wringing his hand. I said to him, My dear Fortunato, you are luckily met. How remarkably well you are looking today. But I have received a pipe of what passes for Amontillado, and I have my doubts. How, said he, Amontillado? A pipe? Impossible. And in the middle of the carnival? I have my doubts, I replied, and I was silly enough to pay the full Amontillado price without consulting you in the matter. You were not to be found, and I was fearful of losing a bargain. Amontillado! I have my doubts. Amontillado! And I must satisfy them. Amontillado! As you are engaged, I am on my way to Lucchese. If anyone has a critical turn, it is he. He will tell me Lucchese cannot tell Amontillado from Sherry. And yet some fools will have it that his taste is a match for your own. Come, let us go. Whither? To your vaults. My friend, no. I will not impose upon your good nature. I perceive you have an engagement. Lucchese, I have no engagement. Come. My friend, no. It is not the engagement, but the severe cold with which I perceive you are afflicted. The vaults are insufferably damp. They are encrusted with nitre. Let us go, nevertheless. The cold is merely nothing. Amontillado. You have been imposed upon. As for Lucchese, he cannot distinguish Sherry from Amontillado. Thus speaking, Fortunato possessed himself of my arm putting on a mask of black silk and drawing a roquelaire closely about my person, I suffered him to hurry me to my palazzo. There were no attendants at home. They had absconded to make merry in honor of the time. I had told them that I should not return until the morning and had given them explicit orders not to stir from the house. These orders were sufficient, I well knew, to ensure their immediate disappearance one and all as soon as my back was turned. I took from their sconces two flambeaux, and giving one to Fortunato, bowed him through several suites of rooms to the archway that led into the vaults. I passed down a long and winding staircase, requesting him to be cautious as he followed. We came at length to the foot of the descent, and stood together on the damp ground of the catacombs of the Montresors. 
The gait of my friend was unsteady, and the bells upon his cap jingled as he strode. The pipe, said he. It is farther on, said I, but observe the white web work which gleams from these cavern walls. He turned toward me and looked into my eyes with two filmy orbs that distilled the room of intoxication. The niter? he asked at length. Niter, I replied. How long have you had that cough? <coughs> my poor friend found it impossible to reply for many minutes. <coughs> it is nothing, he said at last. Come, I said with decision. We will go back. Your health is precious. You are rich, respected, admired, beloved. You are happy, as once I was. You are a man to be missed. For me, it is no matter. We will go back. You will be ill, and I cannot be responsible. Besides, there is Lucchese. Enough, he said. The cough is merely nothing. It will not kill me. <coughs> I shall not die of a cough. True. True, I replied. And indeed, I had no intention of alarming you unnecessarily. But you should use all proper caution. A draft of this medoc will defend us from the damps. Here I knocked off the neck of a bottle, which I drew from a long row of its fellows that lay upon the mold. Drink, I said, presenting him the wine. He raised it to his lips with a leer. He paused and nodded to me familiarly, while his bells jingled. I drink, he said, to the buried that repose around us. And I, to your long life. He again took my arm and we proceeded. These vaults, he said, are extensive. The Montressors, I replied, were a great and numerous family. I forget your arms. A huge human foot door. In a field azure, the foot crushes a serpent rampant whose fangs are embedded in the heel. And the motto? Nemo me impune la quesit. Good, he said. The wine sparkled in his eyes, and the bells jingled. My own fancy grew warm with the medoc. We had passed through walls of piled bones, with casks and puncheons intermingling, into the inmost recesses of the catacombs. I paused again, and this time I made bold to seize Fortunato by an arm above the elbow. The niter, I said. See, it increases. It hangs like moss upon the vaults. We are below the river's bed. The drops of moisture trickle among the bones. Come, we will go back ere it's too late. Your cough, it is nothing, he said. Let us go on. But first, another draft of the Medoc. I broke and reached him a flaçon de grave. He emptied it at a breath. His eyes flashed with a fierce light. He laughed and threw the bottle upwards with a gesticulation I did not understand. I looked at him in surprise. He repeated the movement, a grotesque one. You do not comprehend, he said. Not I, I replied. Then you are not of the Brotherhood. How? You are not of the Masons. Yes, yes, I said. Yes, yes. You? Impossible. A mason? 
A mason, I replied. A sign, he said. It is this, I answered, producing a trowel from beneath the folds of my roquelaire. You jest, he exclaimed, recoiling a few paces. But let us proceed to the Amontillado. Be it so, I said, replacing the tool beneath the cloak and again offering him my arm. He leaned upon it heavily. We continued our route in search of the Amontillado. We passed through a range of low arches, descended, passed on, and descending again, arrived at a deep crypt, in which the foulness of the air caused our flambeau rather to glow than flame. At the most remote end of the crypt there appeared another less spacious. Its walls had been lined with human remains, piled to the vault overhead, in the fashion of the great catacombs of Paris. Three sides of this interior crypt were still ornamented in this manner. From the fourth, the bones had been thrown down and lay promiscuously upon the earth, forming at one point a mound of some size. Within the wall thus exposed by the displacing of the bones, we perceived a still interior recess, in depth about four feet, in width three, in height six or seven. It seemed to have been constructed for no especial use within itself, but formed merely the interval between two of the colossal supports of the roof of the catacombs, and was backed by one of their circumscribing walls of solid granite. It was in vain that Fortunato, uplifting his dull torch, endeavored to pry into the depths of the recess. Its termination the feeble light did not enable us to see. Proceed, I said. Herein is the Amontillado. As for Lucchese, he is an ignoramus, interrupted my friend, as he stepped unsteadily forward while I followed immediately at his heels. In an instant he had reached the extremity of the niche, and finding his progress arrested by the rock, stood stupidly bewildered. A moment more and I had fettered him to the granite. In its surface were two iron staples, distant from each other about two feet horizontally. From one of these depended a short chain, from the other a padlock. Throwing the links about his waist, it was but the work of a few seconds to secure it. He was much too astounded to resist. Withdrawing the key, I stepped back from the recess. Pass your hand, I said, over the wall. You cannot help feeling the nighter. Indeed, it is very damp. Once more, let me implore you to return. No? Then I will positively leave you, but I must first render you all the little attentions in my power. The Amontillado, ejaculated my friend, not yet recovered from his astonishment. True, I replied. The Amontillado. As I said these words, I busied myself among the pile of bones, of which I have before spoken. Throwing them aside, I soon uncovered a quantity of building stone and mortar. With these materials and with the aid of my trowel, I began vigorously to wall up the entrance of the niche. I had scarcely laid the first tier of my masonry when I discovered that the intoxication of Fortunato had in great measure worn off. The earliest indication I had of this was a low moaning cry from the depth of the recess. It was not the cry of a drunken man. There was then a long and obstinate silence. I laid the second tier, and the third, and the fourth, 
and then I heard the furious vibrations of the chain. The noise lasted for several minutes, during which, that I might hearken to it with more satisfaction, I ceased my labors and sat down upon the bones. When at last the clanking subsided, I resumed the trowel and finished without interruption the fifth, the sixth, and the seventh tier. The wall was nearly upon a level with my breast. I again paused, and holding the flambeau over the mason work, threw a few feeble rays upon the figure within. A succession of loud and shrill screams bursting suddenly from the throat of the chained form seemed to thrust me violently back. For a brief moment, I hesitated. I trembled. Unsheathing my rapier, I began to grope with it about the recess, but the thought of an instant reassured me. I placed my hand upon the solid fabric of the catacombs and felt satisfied. I reapproached the wall. I replied to the yells of him who clamored. I re-echoed, I aided, I surpassed them in volume and in strength. I did this, and the clamorer grew still. It was now midnight, and my task was drawing to a close. I had completed the eighth, the ninth, and the tenth tier. I had finished a portion of the last and the eleventh. There remained but a single stone to be fitted and plastered in. I struggled with its weight. I placed it partially in its destined position. But now there came from out the niche a low laugh that erected the hairs upon my head. It was succeeded by a sad voice which I had difficulty in recognizing as that of the noble Fortunato. The voice said, <laughs> A very good joke indeed. An excellent jest. We will have many a rich laugh about it at the palazzo. <laughs> Over our wine. <laughs> the Amontillado, I said. <laughs> yes, the Amontillado. But is it not getting late? Will not they be awaiting us at the Palazzo, the Lady Fortunato, and the rest? Let us be gone. Yes, I said. Let us be gone. For the love of God, Mondressor! Yes, I said, for the love of God. But to these words I hearkened in vain for a reply. I grew impatient. I called aloud, Fortunato! No answer. I called again, Fortunato! No answer still. I thrust a torch through the remaining aperture and let it fall within. There came forth in return only a jingling of the bells. My heart grew sick, on account of the dampness of the catacombs. I hastened to make an end of my labor. I forced the last stone into its position. I plastered it up. Against the new masonry, I re-erected the old rampart of bones. For the half of a century, no mortal has disturbed them. In pace requiesca. And that concludes The Cask of Amontillado by Edgar Allan Poe. Definitely one of Poe's strongest works, in my opinion. He hits every note 
every moment perfectly leading up to the climax and reveal of the piece. I also love a story where you have a completely unreliable narrator. And let's face it, that pretty much includes most of Poe's narrators. We never find out why Montresor has such an issue with Fortunato. Is there an actual cause for him to be walling him up in the first place? And the irony, the name Fortunato in itself means fortunate one. Hmm, Not so much in this tale. And Fortunato in his comment about how Montresor couldn't possibly be a mason, (laughs) that's funny in itself, in a morbid, disturbing way, of course. It's even funnier when you think about the actual feud that many theorize was the inspiration for this story. Legend has it that Poe had made an enemy of a fellow writer, Thomas Dunn English, who supposedly wrote a very harsh critique of some of Poe's poems and published some pretty horrible stuff about him. Poe sued English for libel and won $225. Then supposedly English retaliated by writing a novel where a very Poe-esque character is an alcoholic writer who is terrorized by a black crow and goes completely mad and ends up in an insane asylum by the end of it. So Poe, of course, answered back with the cask of Amontillado. Many claim there are several nods to English's book, including the phrase, for the love of God, which English allegedly used quite often in his piece. Poe, of course, uses it at a critical juncture in his story. That must have been quite a slap in the face to English, as well as the Montresor family motto, Nemo me impuni la quesit, which translates to, no one insults me with impunity. If the legend is true, Poe is even more so my hero because of it. That is it for this week's episode. The next two weeks, we will have some spooky stories of the season. Like the song says, there will be scary ghost stories and tales of the glories of Christmases long, long ago. So be sure to join in as we try to revive an old Victorian tradition. I'm Tori the Moth, and this has been the Creepy Reads Podcast. Until next time.